last journeys of his life uh, as the book of Acts comes to a close. Now, one of the things we're trying to emphasize here at First Colony uh, in 2013 is this idea of being sent out. This idea that you and I as Christians, not because we go to a certain church or not because we are involved in this ministry or that ministry or work at a church or don't work at a church, but just by virtue of being a Christian, by virtue of having the Spirit inside of our hearts, by virtue of following Jesus, you and I are sent people. We're sent out. And we need to recover. And we're going to try to recover in 2013 this kind of identity as being sent out people. Our, our mission statement here at the church is that we would glorify God by making disciple-making disciples of Jesus. And so we've kind of issued a challenge as we've hit 2013 um, that you and I over this year in 2013 would go and make a disciple. Maybe as a family or as individuals, but that we would invest in somebody near to us and pray with them and walk alongside them and see them um, be baptized, see them grow into Christian maturity, and then see them sent out on mission into the world. See them go and make disciples, making disciples who then make disciples. Now, as we preach through uh, the book of Acts, and then particularly as I was reading through the, the chapter that we'll read together this morning, I kept coming back to a few kind of basic prayer requests. And thinking through this idea of trying to be sent out. So we've, I mean, we've talked before, Paul, and we'll see it again this morning, is kind of like the, the varsity level player when it comes to missions, okay? We're all probably, no matter how hard we try, we're probably all going to be still reaching up to try to get to kind of where Paul's playing at, where, he, where he's operating at. Um, but as I'm reading Paul, and as I'm reading through this chapter, I kept coming back to these, these basic prayer requests. And so there's five of them. So this morning, uh, I titled the sermon, The Prayer Journal of a Wannabe Sent Person. Okay, so, so I want to be sent, and, and here are our five prayer requests that, that I kept coming back to as I was reading through this chapter. So I want to share them with you, and, and maybe we can adopt them for this week and, and lift up these prayers to the Lord as you and I become sent people like Paul was a sent person. In fact, this week as I was praying through the chapter, uh, I kept praying for God to, as we'll see, I mean, just show me, uh, bring people to me who, who I can pour into and who can help develop into a disciple and I actually had three people just this week approach me with no like further prompting for myself or anything like that. Just approach me out of the blue and say, hey, would you like to meet together and talk about God and the Bible? And I really want to grow and learn and things like that. And so I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I realized what that was. I could check that off. The answered prayers, okay, moving into that column. Um, now, I don't, I'm not going to guarantee the same results for you. Uh, I think God knows that I'm kind of a weak person, so he often sends me real obvious things like that. I don't think he trusts me too much to go out on my own and and kind of fulfill those things. Um, But five prayer requests I think we'll see here in this chapter uh, as you and I try to be sent people. So we'll read through uh, the chapter and and talk as we go, and then we'll lay out these five uh, prayer requests. So we'll pick it up. Acts 21, verse 37. Real quick before we jump in, if you'll remember from last week, the context of what's happening, Paul has gone to Jerusalem. He's taking some money from the Gentile churches that he started. He's taking them to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem leaders are really nervous because everywhere Paul goes, people end up rioting, right? He's just danger walking. And so they're nervous when he gets to Jerusalem. Sure enough, they come up with this plan to try to get him out of danger in Jerusalem. So he's going to go through this kind of purification ritual in the temple to kind of appease the Jewish people who might have been upset at him. And he does that, even doing that, they start a riot, okay? You just can't avoid it if you're Paul. So they start rioting. They start beating him up right outside the temple. And then the Roman troops come in and stop the rioting, stop the beating. And they're taking him back to the prison, and that's where we're going to pick up, okay? Verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? 
Are you not the Egyptian, then, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? So we know historically there actually was an Egyptian who leads this force of about 4,000 troops that were called the assassins uh, in Greek. And, and they were put down by the Roman armies, but their leader, an Egyptian, escaped. And so this is kind of what the tribune is thinking. He's shown back up in Jerusalem, and the Jews have captured him. Remember we talked about this period of land, or, or this place of land, and this period of time is a very volatile place in a very volatile time revolution and revolt after revolution and revolt and so uh, he says aren't you that egyptian paul replies verse 39 i'm a jew from tarsus and cilicia a citizen of no obscure city and i beg you permit me to speak to the people and when he had given him permission paul standing on the steps motioned with his hand to the people and when there was a great hush he addressed them in the hebrew language probably aramaic a dialect saying Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet, and he said. So this is remarkable, just as we get started here in this chapter. Paul has gone from being beaten within an inch of his life, okay, to now he's somehow finagled the situation to where he's about to give a sermon to this huge group of Jewish people and to these Roman soldiers, okay? Um, Paul has done it again. He just has this kind of way about him, okay? And so he's about to enter into death. Now, when you and I read the story from last week in kind of a Western setting, we think of the troops coming in as kind of saving Paul from sure death. And while they did save Paul from sure death, um, they weren't going to, to save Paul and kind of push him away into another city, right? And say, get on with your life. It was surely he was going to die still. I mean, the Roman, the Roman troops were just going to kill him in a more ordered and organized way. Um, so having not read along through the book of Acts, just at this point in the story, you've escaped the danger from the Jews... But, but you're still kind of in danger, right? I mean, Paul surely has all this stuff running through his mind, all of his hopes and dreams to go places and spread the gospel, now kind of coming to an end, as lo and behold, this riot did start in Jerusalem, and now he's taken into Roman custody. And as he's being led up into the barracks, again, remember, they're, they're crowd-serving him because the, the people are still trying to get at him and to kill him. He asks the person, hey, can I, can I have a word with everybody? And somehow they, they're like, okay, and he works it out. And so here he goes. He's about to preach a sermon, okay? And once he starts up in the Aramaic, uh, the, the Jewish people kind of quiet down, and he has an audience. And here we go with Paul's sermon in, in verse 3. He says this, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city here in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way. This is Luke's way of talking about Christianity, right? The way. I persecuted this way to the death Binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So basically what Paul just said to this group of Jewish people who are so zealous, who are so excited about the laws and the customs God has given them as Jews, that they are, are willing to persecute anything that they, uh, that they think um, is a threat to that kind of way of life, to them following those customs. Paul basically says, look, I did what you're doing now only better, right? Paul's saying, look, you're persecuting me now because you're threatened by the law, but I invented persecuting Christians. He says, I was doing this years before you even came around, okay? Years ago, he says, I was leading the way. I was persecuting Christians. I was killing them. In fact, I had my orders from way up high. Y'all just kind of spontaneously formed this right. This was an intentional thing on my part, Paul says, look, I, I have this connection with you. I used to be where you were. I was so zealous for the law. 
In fact, I had orders from the high priest. Most of the Jews in this audience probably would have never had any contact with the high priest. I mean, Paul has an impressive kind of Jewish pedigree. And he's forming this, this connection with the audience here. And, and they're giving him ear. They're hearing what he has to say. And, and he's going to then describe how he was transformed, how he went from being that persecutor of Christians to now being the one persecuted by the zealous Jews. In verse 6, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So Paul tells his conversion story again. Now, we've already seen Paul's conversion story in Acts, in chapter 9. And in fact, we'll see it again before we're out of the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 26 as well, chapters 9, 22, and 26. Now, either Luke is a very bad storyteller, or a bad editor, right? And he's collecting these stories. He doesn't realize that he has the same thing in there three times. And later on, okay, he's in heaven right now, kind of embarrassed. Like, ah, I can't believe I put that in there three times. Or he has a reason for putting in the same thing three times, as if he wants his readers to know it really well. As if he wants his readers to know exactly what happened to Paul, to the point where they could almost say it by memory. Paul, this this persecutor of the Christians, we might call him a terrorist, a religious fanatic terrorist, right? Killing people because of his, his zealous religious beliefs. He's converted. And, and what conversion is for Paul, and, and kind of we took our cue with this in, in chapter 9, is it's this experience with the resurrected Christ. Paul meets, he encounters the resurrected one. And that event, that reality, that belief changes Paul's life from the inside out. And Paul starts to realize that all the promises that were given to Israel were fulfilled in, in this one, in Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the one who was crucified and the one who raised again, that now he, he sits at the right hand of the Father and he reigns and he's given his spirit to the church. And Paul has this kind of dramatic life-transforming experience. Now, I think there's a reason, there's probably lots of reasons, but, but one of the reasons maybe Paul wants us, or Luke wants us to understand this story and, and wants us to really grasp what happens to Paul is because you and I often as Christians we need to convert much more than our belief system. Sometimes I think we, we just stop with conversion with belief systems. So where, as I used to believe Jesus wasn't God, now I've converted and, and I believe Jesus was God and things of that nature. But, but oftentimes we need a much deeper, much more ultimate conversion, a change in our lives when we start to follow Christ and start to walk after him. So, I mean, most of us need a pretty dramatic conversion and lifestyle. In actions, right? I, I used to do these kind of things, and now I don't do those kind of things anymore. One of the things that I think that we need to have converted is our imaginations. I think it's really important for you and I to have our imaginations converted, to have the way we view the world changed, to have the way we imagine possibilities changed, to have the way we imagine relationships working out and future things occurring. And one of the things that telling stories does over and over and over again is it slowly but surely starts to shape and change 
and convert your imagination. It's really hard sometimes to understand a Christian who has a hard time giving grace to other people. I mean, has a hard time extending forgiveness and mercy and grace or imagining that, that someone could still be found by Christ and could still be transformed by his love and by the spirit. And, and I mean, if you're just reading kind of the scriptures, I think you'd think it's impossible. There's no way a person could, could be given the grace of Christ and then not extend that to other people. But, but we're alive, right? And we know people all around us. Even some of us on, on, on dark days and dark nights have a hard time sometimes imagining that other people could receive the love of Christ and that, that you and I should extend forgiveness to other people. But I think someone who's trained in the story of Paul, who has his conversion in their imaginations, stops seeing people as enemies and stops seeing people as those destined for destruction and stops seeing people as those too far and instead starts seeing people as, as people who need to meet the resurrected one, as people who need the transforming life-changing grace of Christ and who can receive it, who aren't too far to receive it. I mean, you, you might even say, I think Paul's story takes on a new significance post 9-11. I mean, there's something that should affect the Christian imagination that this terrorist who once persecuted Christians now becomes a Christian leader. I mean, and honestly, he's the only reason you and I as Gentiles are Christians. He was a killer. He was a murderer. He was the least likely person to not only become a Christian, but then to become a Christian leader. And Luke wants you to never forget this story. The same Paul who was persecuting Christians, killing them intentionally, not only meets the resurrected one, but is so transformed by it that he becomes the leader of the mission to the Gentiles. And he is, in a real sense, our spiritual father. This one. The one who's a, a Jew, born in Tarsus. He had all the, the Jewish resume fillers. And he was, he was zealous for the law. And I think, I think he's rubbing in here. I, I was more zealous than you are. I mean, this is really cute. You ganging up on someone at the temple, right? I, this is a living, though. Like, get on my level, Paul's saying to them. You're, you're not anywhere near where I was. But something happened to me. And I realized that Jesus had, had died and, and resurrected and that he was now the, the reigning Lord over the universe and that his spirit was now available to those uh, around us. So, so Paul uh, recounts his conversion story to the people listening. He still has their ear, okay? He still has their ear. They're still listening to him about this Messiah. Verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait, rise and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name? When I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, this very temple that Paul was just um, uh, just kind of beat up outside of. I fell into a trance and saw him, Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I said, Lord, they themselves know that I, in one synagogue after another, imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, the first Christian martyr, when, when his blood was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So, so Paul recounts this vision he gets in the temple where Jesus comes to him and says, Paul, they're going to come after you here. You need to get out. And Paul kind of argues. He goes back with Jesus and goes, well, no, I mean, they know me. They know I used to persecute everyone in this, this group. Surely they'll, they'll trust me. Surely they'll, they'll give me an ear. And, and Jesus says, no, you need to go. And in verse 21, go, I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. And it's at this point in his sermon, he's had people's attention so far. It's at this point that it all breaks loose again. Okay, verse 22, up until this word, they listened to him. But then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not even be allowed to live. To live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and fleeing dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. Okay, so there's kind of this hometown loyalty feeling of betrayal that, that's happened here with the Jewish people and with Paul's mission to the Gentiles. Um, this week I was thinking of, of an analogy, and, and <laughs> it's a bad one, but the closest I got was, I don't know if you watch the NBA or follow the NBA, um, but LeBron James is kind of a big deal in the NBA right now. And he played for a team uh, in Cleveland, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and he grew up in Cleveland, and he was kind of their hometown boy. And, and the whole city had kind of invested their hopes in him. And then he kind of ruthlessly left their city and made like a big TV show about it and went to Miami. And what happens is that whole city has now so much hatred toward this one person, right? I mean, the whole city feels betrayed. Like, you spit in all of our faces, you slapped us on ESPN, okay, on primetime television. And so, I mean, whenever he comes back to Cleveland, right, I mean, it's just bad news for him. People are yelling and screaming, um, people are giving it to him. And you've got that kind of thing happening here, times 10, times 100, okay, with this kind of religious aspect tied into it. The Jewish people had erected this firm barrier between themselves and the Gentiles, And it had been reinforced in their mind through years of being oppressed and persecuted and enslaved and sent into exile. And when Paul says, I've been sent to the Gentiles, they lose it. And they say, that's exactly why you need to die. You're not being true to our customs. You're not being true to our identity. Now, it's really interesting because Paul could have stopped his sermon with just explaining, hey, I met the Messiah This Jesus guy who died, and and we all thought he was just a criminal dying on a cross, he resurrected. He really is the Messiah. He could have stopped there, and and he might have gotten more of an ear. But he he throws in this, it's almost like a jab. You've got to imagine he knows what he's doing here. He throws in the fact that, look, y'all have rejected the Messiah, and the Gentiles have accepted him, and they lose it. So the, the tribune brings him into the prison, and he's going to torture him, okay, to get some information out of him. So they stretched him, verse 25, out for the whips. And Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, <clears throat> is, it, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and who's not been condemned? If you'll remember, okay, in Philippi, Paul waits until after he's tortured to tell the, the guards that he's a Roman citizen, which was a, like a death penalty back then. You weren't allowed to touch Roman citizens without a fair trial, that sort of thing. Maybe what happens is Paul, having gone through that once, is like, I'm going to bring this out before we even do this, okay? I did the whole torture thing once, so I'm not interested in doing it again. And so he kind of, this kind of, he kind of subtly slides him here. And, excuse me, I don't, I don't know how the rules work, maybe, but are you allowed to do this to someone who's a Roman citizen? Or could this get you in, in really big trouble? Um, so the, the centurion, he hears, he hears this, verse 26, and he goes to the tribune and says to him, What are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. And the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul said, yes. 
The Tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul says, I'm a citizen by birth. So you could actually buy Roman citizenship. It was expensive. It was a long process. Paul, though, um, being born in Tarsus, we know there's a large population of Jews who were given citizenship as a gift from the emperor. Um, he has it by birth. In fact, we know for a couple hundred years before Paul's around, Jews were citizens. So he might even be like a third or fourth generation Roman citizen. And so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Okay, and we'll look at that conversation uh, next week as Paul is in front of the Jewish authorities. Much like, again, Jesus, when he goes to Jerusalem, is handed over to the Roman authorities and then faces the Jewish authorities as well. But as we think through um, this example of, of Paul again being sent out, five things come to mind that, that I've been praying for in my own life and, and that I want to invite you to pray with me for uh, as well. The first one is this. I think you and I are called to and need to start praying for a passion to reach people. Paul is overwhelmed with this sense of purpose and mission. I mean, he has this strong vocation inside of him that he is sent out. And in fact, he starts most of his letters, right, with I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a messenger sent out for Jesus. And he's sent out to, to both the Jews and to the Gentiles. He's kind of overwhelmed by this passion. Now, Paul's a man of extremes. I mean, on, on both sides of the fence, right? So when he's a, a Jewish um, a person, not converted, uh, not following the Messiah, that kind of thing, he's persecuting, right? Killing anyone who's not doing it the way he thinks. And now that he's a Christian, he's going out and traveling all over the world, getting beaten up and starting churches. Paul's not the kind of guy who finds like a nice, comfortable middle road, right? He's either 100% this way or 100% that way. And he has this kind of deep profound passion to reach people, including his Jewish brothers. In fact, real fast, flip with me to Romans chapter 9. Paul writes Romans just a few weeks before he goes to Jerusalem. He'll even mention in Romans that he's nervous about going to Jerusalem, not knowing if the, the Jewish people will accept the offering. And in verse 1, Paul says this. This is right after chapter 8, the kind of climax of, of Paul's exposition of the gospel. Nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in verse 1 he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, I have such a burning passion to see the Jewish people come to accept and follow their Messiah. That even at points, I myself think that I would trade places with them. That if, if God would grant me out this kind of deal where I could be cursed and they could be brought into the family, I would, I would accept it. Paul says, again, kind of overwhelming sense of mission. And it's, it's been driving him through the book of Acts as we've been seeing that. And I think sometimes, if I'm being honest, that's something that I, I don't have. I'm, I'm too content for far most of the time to just live the status quo. And to try to find my own kind of purposes for life. 
And I haven't fully been engaged with this idea that you and I as Christians have been given a purpose and, and that we are to be sent people. And so this week I've been praying that God would develop that inside of me. That he would impress on me this kind of great commission that he gives his disciples. All of them. Every single one of them. Without excuse. Go and make disciples, Matthew 28. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I think we need to pray and we need to ask God to just give us this kind of sense of urgency. To give us this, this vocational understanding of being sent people. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he says... God wants to talk to people, and you're his ambassadors. You're his mouthpieces, as though he were speaking through you. And this remarkable idea that there are people in your life whom God wants to reach, and he wants to do it through you, through your words, and through your actions, through your relationship with that person, through your resources and skills and talents and times. I think sometimes one of the reasons... You and I struggle with the Christian life is because it's because we're kind of bored, and because we kind of don't need a lot of the things that that we try to get. There's something about living on mission that forces you to develop kind of your spiritual disciplines toolbox, right? I mean, when you're finally out trying to minister to people, you realize, oh, I need to know a little bit more about the Bible because they're asking good questions, or hey, this is a really tough situation. I'm going to need to really start to pray more. I'm, I'm understanding now the importance of prayer. Or, hey, I can't do this alone. I need some brothers and sisters to come around with me to help me out and to give me encouragement and to do things like that. And sometimes I feel Christians wander along life trying to figure out, hey, why can't I pray very well? Why can't I read my Bible very well? Why don't I live in community very well? When in reality, they have real no, no, no real need for those things. They're never called upon to use those things because they're not following after the purpose that, that's been given to them as Christians. We sent people to go and share the gospel, to be witnesses to Christ and to his resurrection. So that's the, the first prayer request I got, I, I think, for, for someone who wants to be a sent person, to pray for a passion to, to reach people, <coughs> the sense of being sent out. The second thing is this, to pray for the focus to be faithful at all times. To pray for the focus to be faithful at all times. Probably the most amazing thing about this chapter to me in Acts is that Paul is able to do this after just being beaten. I mean, I'm not the most holy person in the world, right? I, th- I think maybe I'm a little more advanced than some people. Like, in the prison, maybe I could find a few people. <laughs> but if I've just been beaten up, that's not the moment I'm feeling like I should preach to you, okay? One of my favorite pastors, uh, <laughs> Eugene Peterson, he tells the story when he was a little kid, his first ever convert was this bully. He used to bully him uh, because he was a Christian. He was a little scrawny kind of Christian kid. And one day, the bully started like punching on him after school, and for the first time in his life, he started to punch back and kind of was surprised at what kind of power he had and ended up kneeling over the kid, right, punching him left and right, going, accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And the kid finally was like, I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And he tells the story, like, my first convert. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the kind of conversion I'm thinking of at that point. But Paul, after just being beaten, carried up on these steps, a hundred things running through his mind, somehow finagles his way into giving a sermon to all of these people. He's still consumed with this passion, this this sentness that, that Christ has given him. I know in my own life I struggle with just letting my guard down. 
and you, and what happens is is you let your guard down. I let my guard down, and and you start to waste time, and you start to waste a day, or a part of a day, or a week, or a month, or a year, or you wake up and realize you waste two years, or three years, or four years, and you wonder all the opportunities that you've missed to share God's grace, to witness the power of the resurrection. And I think we need to pray for focus that, that we'd be faithful at all times. Sometimes my mood, right, will sway me into not understanding and, and focusing on my sentence. Or sometimes my circumstances will, will, will catch my attention and distract me. But Paul seems to be, I mean, zeroed in at all times. And he, he never misses those opportunities. And, and as a follower of Christ, I don't want to miss those opportunities either. Just because I was tired or because I was thinking about something else. Or because I was in a bad mood. I just want to pray for, for focus to be faithful. The, the third thing I've got here is, is a prayer for, for courage to be faithful in every place, in every location. Um, Paul here, he, he never really seems out of place in any place. I mean, whether Paul's with Jewish people or Gentile people, whether Paul is in the court um, or whether Paul's in the temple, whether Paul's in prison, okay? He's, if he's in prison, he's singing hymns in the middle of the night, right? Converting people. If he's um, in a Gentile city, he's, he's talking to them at the marketplace. If he's in a Jewish area, he's in the temple or the synagogue talking to people. If he's in Athens, the kind of capital of intellectual thought of the day, he's debating with the philosophers. I mean, Paul never really comes to a place where he feels like he's not sent, and he feels like he doesn't have anything to do. One of the things that I worry about is I think sometimes you have this tendency to separate life out into kind of this religious-secular divide. Okay, And the way it works for, I think, some of us is you've got Sunday morning or you've got a church, and that's kind of your God time, right? I mean, that's the time you're focused on God. That's the time you're trying to be close to God. And then you've got these other areas of your life that are, are in a sense, disconnected. You've got work. And at work, you do work. And you act like a person at work, and you talk like a person at work, and you relate to people like you relate to people at work. And then you've got a whole other little place, a whole other area, and this is kind of your recreation time. And then you've got kind of your home with your family, those type of things. Not only do I think this is not the right way to see it, but, but you start missing out on these opportunities, right? So, so if the only time you're really focused and zeroed in on what God is doing is in church, and then the one or two like volunteer opportunities that you're serving at each week. You're missing out on opportunities to serve at your workplace and to minister at your recreational places and to, to show the love of Christ at your homes. I think we need to merge the, these kind of separation um, of, of our lives, this kind of way of dividing out who we are at different times and in different places. I think one of the best things we can do to recover the sense of being sent people is realize what your mission field actually is. And your mission field is wherever you're going to be tomorrow morning and wherever you're going to be on Wednesday night and wherever you're going to be on Saturday night. I mean, that's where God has you. That's the place where you are being sent to join him in his work. One of the things we've tried to do at, at FCQ over the past few years is, is recover an understanding that Sundays or, or church time is a time for believers. It's a time for, for the people of God to come together and to worship. And that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday are times for evangelism or for mission or for ministry. And so the American church is somewhat confused about this kind of concept. And you see 
um, churches and places waver back and forth on this all the time. Um, on one hand, you've got kind of the seeker-sensitive um, model, right? Which is you want to attract as many people as possible on Sunday morning and dumb down everything to the lowest common denominator and try to get numbers on Sunday morning. And then during the week, right, you, you try to backdoor them into discipleship and things of that nature. And we have, with, without kind of saying that's, I mean, inherently wrong, just said that's not how we see church functioning, we see Sunday morning as kind of like a timeout, right, from the real job, the real ministry, where we come together and we, we breathe, and we pray together, and we worship together, and we read the scriptures together, and we give each other a high five and a pat on the back, and we go back to our, our mission field on Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday. One of the things I'll, I'll tell people sometimes is, when talking about the church, I'll be like, yeah, we're multi-site. <laughs> got a few different campuses all over Sugarland. And then they forgot we had like 60 people. They're like, what are you talking about? You can't have two services, multi-site. I'm like, well, I mean, yeah, 60 people. We're in 60 different places at any time during the week where the work that God has done in us is now being done through us to people all over the greater Houston area. We're sent. We're sent out. One of the things I pray at the end of most services, right, is that we would be filled up and then sent out. That here on Sunday morning we receive the Spirit, and then He would work through us during the week. Now the fourth thing I've got down for us, the fourth um, prayer request in the prayer journal of a, a wannabe sent person, is that we would pray for strength to be faithful despite all costs. Paul, as we've seen multiple times, is willing to sacrifice a lot to fulfill his mission. He said before, right, I, imprisonment means nothing to me chains mean nothing to me and my life means nothing to me if only he says i can finish the course laid out for me if only i can faithfully walk those few steps that i see in front of me and hear jesus calling me to walk whatever else happens whatever else comes along the way so be it. i'm willing to pay the price and i don't think you and i will, will ever be called to i mean maybe but but i doubt that, that you and i will ever be called to, to give up our lives or, or really probably ever be in prison or, or anything like that. But there are times when you're faced with the, the choice of obeying Christ and sacrificing something or not obeying. And there is this real truth to the idea that if you recover your persona as a sent person, it will cost something. Whether it's just time whether it's, it's resources, whether it's just kind of your emotional capital. I mean, oftentimes, really ministering and pouring yourself out to somebody else is not convenient for you. And there are times when you'd rather just say, you know what, I don't want to pay this cost right now. Maybe, maybe later down the road. Maybe then I'll be ready to really sacrifice, truly give up certain things. And there's, there's this deep truth, I think, that I've learned working in full-time ministry, that when you really are giving up your life for somebody else, really serving and pouring yourself out for other people, there is this kind of emotional toll that it takes on you, even some spiritual toll. I think Paul in, in 2 Corinthians describes it as death working in me so that life would work in you. That's how he describes it in the pastoral role. Sometimes I take on suffering. I, I take sacrifices. I pay costs so that you would know how much Jesus loves you and, and what he's done for you and what he desires for you to do. I think for you and I to, to really be sent people, perhaps we, 
will need to have this supernatural strength to be faithful despite the costs that, that might be required of us. Then the fifth and last thing I've got down here is a prayer for God to use my or your unique experiences and strengths and weaknesses. Paul is always willing to leverage where he's been and who he knows and what he has to further the gospel. And he has this sense that wherever he is and whoever he's talking to, God has prepared him for that moment. And God has supernaturally saw him through right to that conversation, right to that moment. And so, I mean, if you think large scope, Paul is uh, a Jewish uh, man, okay, with this intense, high-level Jewish training. He is a Greek-educated man, educated in rhetoric and Greek literature and philosophy. Again, we've seen him stand his own against the great debaters of the day. He is a Roman citizen. He has a foot firmly planted in all three of these big worlds of his time. And at any given point, he's willing to leverage it and willing to believe that God has prepared me for this moment. And I think just like Paul, you and I, we're prepared. And oftentimes we don't know we're prepared until we're called to, to act, right? Until we're called to be obedient. But, but you, your experiences and your backgrounds and the story that you have as a human being, as one who's come to know Christ, is oftentimes uniquely used by God to minister to other people. And your strengths and skill sets and interests, and even sometimes your weaknesses and failures, I think are oftentimes uniquely used by God to minister to other people. When I was younger, I, I had panic disorder, and I, had, I experienced these panic attacks over and over and over and over and over again. And at the time going through, it was just miserable. I mean, it was miserable. There was no point to it at all. I was upset at God. I was upset at the world. Didn't understand why it was happening. Didn't want it to happen. And then as I, I kind of was given grace to, to come out of that and overcome that, and as it's been years since that's kind of taken place, I can't tell you the number of times I've sat down with somebody who's going through that in the moment and been able to share my experience and be able to look back and go, I mean, this is crazy. At the time, I had no idea what was happening, right? But, but even years ago, God is preparing me for this encounter, for these good works, Ephesians 2, Tim would say, laid out in advance for me to be able to share my experiences. And oftentimes God works through, kind of again, just our skill set and what we're interested in. And oftentimes that's who he, he sends us to. That's the people we're called to minister to. That's the people we're called to live life with. Or we're called to, to spread the gospel with. And so these five prayers, as we watch Paul as a, a sent person, even in these extraordinary circumstances, I, 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 I'm asking that maybe this week we would all adopt to, to pray for a passion to reach people, for the sense of, of being a sent person. And that we would pray for focus at all times, for courage in all places, for strength despite any cost, and for God to use your unique story and your unique skill sets, and again, maybe even weaknesses and failures, to be a witness. And that maybe you and I as a group of people, FC Cube in 2013, we would further grow into this identity, a sent people, a sent community, further imaging and looking like the community we see here in the book of Acts. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Uh, we, we thank you for our time this morning. I, I thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. I thank you for the grace that you have extended to us. I pray, Father, that you would 
constantly open up our eyes to the people around us that you're working in and, and that you want us to come step alongside you with. And, and I pray that you would develop within us this passion, this sense of, of zeal for others to know and to worship Christ. And I pray that, that we would step out of our comfort zones and, 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 and go be sent, Father, at all times and in all places and despite what it may cost us. I pray that you would continue to, to grow us, continue to draw near to us, continue to transform us into your image. And it's in your son's beautiful and precious name that all of God's people prayed.